today. We're in Mark chapter 16 in a message I call, Who Shall Roll Us Away the Stone? Let's stand together as we reverence the reading of God's Word this morning. Mark chapter 16 and verse 1. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun, and they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? May God bless the reading of his word today as my prayer. You may be seated. We have considered the gospel mark of Mark under the general heading, Gospel Truth for a Growing Chaos. We thought it important to consider, given the chaotic condition and the growing chaos in our world, uh, to reacquaint ourselves with the pivotal truth of Jesus Christ, with who Jesus is, with what he did, what he is doing, and what he is going to do in this world. Because let me tell you something, folks, the pivotal truth in this world is not what is happening in Washington, D.C. It's not what's happening in China. It's not what's happening in Russia. The pivotal, pivotal truth that is happening in this world is what is happening around our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about him and what he is doing. He is the one who determines the destiny of this planet. And it's already determined. And so we're looking not only at who Jesus is, at what he did, what he's doing, but also what he is going to do. And we're almost done with this sermonic journey. We approach the end of the book, and of course it ends with the climactic truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you this morning a story about a man named Albert Henry Ross. Ross was an English journalist who lived and worked around the turn of the last century. The 1890s had brought an explosion of skepticism and criticism toward Jesus that began in Germany and quickly spread around the world with devastating individual and national and even international consequences. Now, you might not be familiar with German skepticism, but you're almost certainly familiar with the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche and the infamous statement in his writings of this time period, published in the late 1800s, declaring that God is dead and we killed him. Frederick Nitschke. It came to be known as the Enlightenment, interestingly enough. Many nations have never recovered from this. Many people have paid and are continuing to pay an eternal price for these concepts. I always enjoyed the famous quote from the great preacher R.G. Lee, who said, A philosopher is someone who knows less and less about more and more until he knows absolutely nothing about everything, R.G. Lee. <laughs> if you have a degree in philosophy this morning, I apologize, but only slightly. <clears throat> in the grip of this philosophical movement, then, 
Albert Ross, decided to use his investigative journalistic mind to write a book focusing on the last week of Jesus' life. He picked that out because the events of the last week of Jesus' life had obviously changed the world. It had produced an eruption of literature over the intervening centuries. And he also liked the fact that in his view, as he understood it, that last week of Jesus' life was mostly free from the miraculous things that he was so skeptical about in the rest of the gospel narratives. He intended to title the book, Jesus, The Last Phase. His idea was to build on the theme that the entire message of Christianity rested on a very insecure foundation. Instead, Albert Henry Ross, who we know better by his pseudonym, Frank Morrison, ended up writing a classic apologetic for the Christian faith called, Who Moved the Stone? The first chapter is appropriately titled, The Book That Refused to Be Written. Now, that book, uh, Who Moved the Stone, is in the public domain. If you'll look closely enough, do a Google search, you can find it and read it on the Internet for free. And since I know that some of you are going to do exactly that, let me warn you uh, that the writer considered some apocryphal literature in his examination of the facts, not only looking then at the biblical narrative, but many of the other uh, church writings, writings of the church fathers as they are known, and, and uh, some uh, flat-out apocryphal or false books. Uh, yet still, it is a classic work where a man who was a skeptic, an agnostic, wrote a book he intended to disprove the Christian faith and instead ended up defending it. Who moved the stone? Now the events on that first day of the week from so long ago, are recorded for us in all four Gospels. As you read them, you'll notice that each one of the writers focused on different things. They saw these events from their own individual perspective. Uh, it is a normal experience for any witness of a significant event. If you interview several witnesses who all saw the same event and they give identical word-for-word -word testimony, then any investigator will tell you what that means. It means they collaborated and got their story together. You don't have to be an investigator. Any parent knows that to be true. You ask your kids what happened, and if they all say exactly the same thing, uh, you know, you know they ain't telling the truth. So the gospel writers in their narrative, though they were absolutely inspired, they emphasized their own perspective of what happened on that day so long ago. And those words from their perspective are faithfully recorded under inspiration. And though they are somewhat different, they of course differ. They're telling different events. It's up to us to piece them all together. Uh, but we know that they are absolutely inspired and all absolutely true. They agree on the most fundamental truth of all, of course. Jesus was dead, but he came back to life. Mark begins his story then in 
chapter 16, where the last chapter ended, as he tells his story through the women who figure so prominently into the resurrection narrative. Verse 45 he, we pick up where Pilate uh, had been approached by Joseph of Arimathea, and uh, he wondered then that Jesus was so quickly dead. But after he confirmed that with the centurion, then Joseph of Arimathea uh, asked that he would be able uh, to take the body of Jesus. So verse 45 tells us, Mark 15, when he found out from the centurion, that's Pilate, he granted the body to Joseph of Arimathea, and then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone, stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of Joseph. They were following and they watched carefully to mark the place then where Joseph had buried the body of Jesus. And so our text then began in that same place and begins with the same person, Mary Magdalene, mentioned three times in this chapter. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came into the sepulcher at the rising of the sun and they said among themselves, who shall roll us away the stone?" See, the, the Sabbath was over at sundown on what we know as Saturday night. Uh, when the Sabbath is over, it was that way in Israel then. It is that way in Israel today when the Sabbath is over and the trumpet sounds signifying or the ram's horn sounds signifying the end of the Sabbath. All of the shops all in Jerusalem and all these other places would suddenly open. The restaurants would open and it becomes a very celebrative scene. And so as the Sabbath was over then, they were able to go and purchase, bought, those spices that they would use to anoint the body of Jesus. They did that on Saturday night. Then they got up early, early on that Sunday morning so long ago when it was still dark. And they made their way to the place that Mary Magdalene knew, the place where Jesus had been buried. As they were making their way then through the streets of Jerusalem and going to that garden scene, because it was located in a garden, they were not talking about that gruesome task that lay ahead. A task that generations of people have had to do over and over again, and that's to deal with the corpse of a loved one that had passed, and in their case, after several days. In our modern culture, of course, we have a whole uh, industry that is devoted to the taking care of the dead. But it was not so in their day. In their day, the, the family did that. They took care of it. The burial happened as soon as possible. They did not embalm the bodies. They didn't have formaldehyde back then. They, they moved quickly. But in Jesus' case, of course, they weren't able to do anything for him except wrapped his body in the linen. And so they bought the spices that they needed. And they went, as families have done from generations, to take care of that gruesome task of anointing that corpse, the body 
of Jesus. They weren't talking about that. Instead, as they, those ladies were going through the streets, they were talking about how they were going to get in to the tomb. The tomb had a large stone rolled over it. The tomb, the stone then had been sealed and was guarded by Roman soldiers. How were they going to get in the tomb? That was what was on their mind. How are we going to get in? Didn't stop them from going. They didn't have all the information they wanted or thought they needed, and yet still they went. They had the spices. They had a task to perform. And they moved toward the performance of their task. But as they arrived then, the answer of how they were going to get into the tomb was immediately apparent. Verse 4, and when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away. For it was very great. Uh, I wish Mark would have given us a little bit more insight into what happened at that moment. It's just not there. He just tells us the facts like he did so many times. He'll get to the point as he goes along as he always does. But As they looked then they saw that the stone was rolled away. Matthew did give us a bit more detail. Matthew 28 and verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. By the way, Matthew answered the question of who moved the stone, by the way. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door. So there was a great earthquake. The angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning. His clothing was as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So we can pick up the narrative in verse 5 then at that point and entering the tomb then, the ladies. Mark 16 and 5. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. Don't you know that angel was excited to be able to deliver that message? I'm still excited. I get excited every time I read it. He's not here. He's risen. Come and see. Come and see. What a great, great three-part sermon that was that the angel preached. and So powerful. So incredible. He's not here. He's risen. Come and see. So they saw that empty tomb. They received the angelic announcement. And verse 8 tells us then that they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher. For they were trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man for they were afraid. Now we know from the gospel narratives that they would indeed end up talking to the apostles. That's not obviously what Mark was saying. I think what Mark was telling us was that they didn't run through the streets shouting out that he's risen. 
Uh, and, and you might uh, find that wonder, kind of wonder about that. I did. You know, why didn't they do it? Why didn't they just immediately go sh- shouting it through the streets? Well, the Bible tells us why. They were afraid. They were afraid. They were trembling. And at that point in the narrative then, no one had actually seen Jesus alive. And Mark makes that very clear for us. The women came. They were talking about the stone. The stone was gone. We could add in Matthew's account and know that there was an earthquake and an angel had rolled the stone back and was sitting on it for a while. They went in and they saw the angel. They got the message. They were afraid and they fled. Nobody had seen Jesus at that point. Then Mark continues the story. Verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Now Bible scholars have been trying to figure out why that Mark continued that narrative the way that he did. But you know, I've always tried to make it a point not to try to answer the why questions when the Bible doesn't give us a a why answer. We're not told why. We're we're just told that he picked up the narrative. So we see the women who went to the the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. They had bought spices the night before. They went there. They saw the angel. They got the message. They fled. But then Mark picks up the narrative. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to, there she is again, Mary Magdalene. It was Mary who was at the cross, Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene who followed to see where Jesus was buried Mary Magdalene, who went to buy the spices on Saturday night when the stores opened. Mary Magdalene, who got up early the next morning to go and anoint the body. But now, who did Jesus appear first to? Not Peter. Not James. Not John. Not Andrew. Mary Magdalene. Out of whom, Mark tells us, he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they didn't believe. Mary Magdalene. That's not her name, by the way. That's where she's from. She's from Magdala. She had been delivered, the Bible tells us, from horrible demonic possession by Jesus Christ, and she had become a devoted follower. Now, there's a long ago, long, long ago theory, idea uh, that was circulated and developed that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had actually married and produced children. A few years ago, that was made into a best-selling book, and some of you may have read the book, and many more of you may have seen the movie. If you haven't, don't waste your time. That is fiction. It's all it ever was and all it is. No, Jesus and Mary Magdalene weren't married. No, 
No, they didn't. No, no, they didn't produce children. No, they didn't live happily ever after, after the resurrection. No, that's, that, that's not the story. So what do we know about Mary Magdalene? Not much. Not much. We do know that she returned to the tomb. After she had initially left at some point, early that morning, she went back and Jesus appeared to her. So that without question, as Mark says, Mary Magdalene was the first eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. Now, John gives us a little bit more information. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away and Jesus said to her Mary she must have recognized his voice she turned and said to him Rabbani which is to say teacher or Rabbi Jesus said to her do not cling to me for I've not yet ascended to my father but go to my brethren and say to them I'm ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord And that he had spoken these things to her. What an amazing story. Let me say it again. It's not Simon Peter here. Not not James. Not John. Not any of the apostles. Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. The seven demons inside of her. We can only imagine what a tormented existence she had lived. Before Jesus saved her and delivered her. We only can imagine the suffering. The emotional, physical, spiritual suffering. We don't know anything about that. There are all kinds of traditions you might hear that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. That is not given to us in scripture. The Bible doesn't say that. Uh, You might have heard a lot of other things about Mary Magdalene. But all of those things are speculation. We do know uh, that she had seven demons living inside of her. I think about the demoniac at Gadara, for example, very quickly. Who they used to bind with strong chains. Think about a log chain. They bound him with strong chains and he'd break them. I think about the man that had a son that they had an encounter with then after the transfiguration and the disciples tried to cast him out and they couldn't. And the man said he often throws him in the fire. He tried to burn him to death. He tried to drown him. Think of how they filled up the hills with their cries of torment. But Then I can also think about the demon-possessed man that Jesus encountered in the synagogue at Nazareth. And apparently nobody even knew he was demon-possessed but Jesus and him. Which side of that was Mary Magdalene on? We don't know. How she had suffered, what she had done. How she had lived is simply not given to us in the biblical narrative. Instead, we are told that Jesus Christ, your Savior and mine and hers, had delivered her from the power of the devil and that she became a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. When others fled, 
She didn't. She was at the cross. She was at his burial. She was at his tomb again and again, and she was the first one, the first one that Jesus appeared to and talked to. Interestingly, Mary Magdalene is only mentioned by name in one other passage outside the crucifixion and resurrection narrative. Well, I thought this one was Mary. Now, we speculate about a lot of it, and I speculate about it some too. It might have been her appearing in some other passages. We're just going to concentrate this morning on what the Bible specifically says. She's only mentioned in one passage of Scripture outside of the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection narrative of Jesus Christ. And that's here in Luke chapter 8 and verse 1. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. If you ever wondered how Jesus was able to travel around with 12 men, well, there was some women folk who traveled around with them too. And they ministered to them out of their substance. That is, that they took care of them. They, they fed them. They prepared meals for them. They ministered to them. And one of them was Mary Magdalene. You see, in this great narrative of Scripture, Mary Magdalene wasn't going to be known by her former lifestyle, whatever it was, because the Bible doesn't tell us a word about it. How many times was Mary Magdalene married? We don't know. What kind of a life did she live? We don't know. Was she an alcoholic? Don't know. Was she a wealthy person? (laughs) We don't know. Instead, what we see about Mary Magdalene, is not about her former lifestyle, whatever it was, Instead, she is forever identified by two things. Number one, Jesus delivered her from the power of the devil and unleashed her from that uh, being possessed by seven demons. And then she gave her life to Jesus Christ and served him so faithfully that she would, in fact, become the first one that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. Mary Magdalene. So this morning, let's just contemplate for a few moments. Reflect, if you will, on the fact that we've also been delivered from the power of the devil. If you're in this service today and you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you have been delivered from the power of the devil. Say, how do you know that, Brother Rich? Because the Bible tells us so. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that is flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So that the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that the reason why Jesus Christ took on human flesh, flesh and blood, was so that he could die. 
and that by his death then he would deliver us from the power of the devil who had the power over death and held people in bondage because they were all their life subject unto him in fear, through the fear of death. And isn't it interesting that there's Mary Magdalene. Now you, you might think that this just happened, that this was just an accident, but I, I don't believe it was just an accident. I believe she was there by divine design. And of all people, Jesus chose one that he had delivered from the power of the devil to be the first one to announce that message to, I'm alive. I'm alive. We've seen this throughout Mark's narrative as various people were strategically placed to demonstrate powerful truth. Jesus was silent before the Jewish high court when he was tried before the law and refused to defend himself, though he could have. Why? That he refused to defend himself because he was taking our place. And while Jesus could have defended himself, you and I have no defense. We are unquestionably, undeniably guilty. We have transgressed the law of God and are worthy of death. Jesus could have defended himself because he had done no sin. But you and I have no defense. He was silent. We saw it with Barabbas, who was absolutely, undeniably guilty, both of murder and treason. He was absolutely worthy of death the, the the crucifixion fate that awaited him yet on this day the guilty went free and the guiltless was crucified oh, what a picture that was you see jesus died for us he died for you he died for me the just for the unjust that he might bring us to god being put to death in the flesh but raised in the spirit he might bring us to God, the just for the unjust. Now once more, we see one of these prominent characters chosen by Jesus, Mary Magdalene, to be the first eyewitness of the resurrection, one who had so powerfully and completely been under the control of the devil. But whatever she had been, whatever she had done, was not going to get the last word in Mary Magdalene's life. Because we remember her. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for her. Because she's been delivered. Because she is devoted to Jesus Christ. And therefore she becomes an eyewitness in to his majesty. Once again though, we see this morning how that this is really just a portrayal of what Jesus does for all of us. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. In which you once walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Yes, that is the devil. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. That was our condition before we knew Jesus Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we were dead men and dead women walking. 
But we weren't walking in our own power. We were walking according to the course of the world. And that course was determined and plotted out for us by none other than the devil himself. It was a path of rejection of God. It was a path of rebellion against God. It was a path with a predetermined, absolute destiny. And that predetermined destiny was that the wages of sin is death. It wasn't like God was going to have to look at how we lived and someday have to figure it out. No, we were already condemned. Jesus said it. He that believeth not is what? Already condemned because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. We were sinners. Sentence had already been passed. We were condemned. We were walking in the course of this world. We were in the domain and under the dominion. Of the devil. That's Ephesians 2. And then there's another. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9. Yes we had the sentence of death in ourselves. That we should not trust in ourselves. But in God who raises the dead. Who delivered us from so great a death. How many of you this morning know. That if you're saved. You've been delivered from so great a death. Not just death. So great a death. And that's not just all that it says, but he does deliver us, and he will deliver us. Death does not have dominion over us anymore. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom... We have redemption through his blood. Oh, we love this one. The forgiveness of sins. No wonder the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. You see, the powerful resurrection story is designed to show us that we don't serve or used to be God. We don't have a used to be kind of salvation. Forever reminding us then of all of our failures and all of our struggles and of everything that we used to be. We serve the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And right here on that very spot, Jesus puts it on prominent display. With Mary Magdalene, the first witness to the resurrected Christ. First one. The first one to talk to him after he rose from the dead. And so while we know that, yes, Mary Magdalene once was possessed by seven demons, not one, but seven. We know that. But we remember her as a devoted follower of Jesus Christ and the first eyewitness to the resurrection. That's the God we serve. We don't serve used to be God. We serve the God who's all about the resurrection power of Jesus Christ and how that changes us to be a new creation in him. You see, we we know about Paul the persecutor. Sure, we know about that. But we we remember him as Paul the apostle and missionary and evangelist. We we know about Peter the denier. Yeah, yeah, we know about that. But, But we remember him as the lion of Pentecost, the apostle of the Jews. And isn't it wonderful? That the angel who spoke to that woman just put a little footnote in there for us to see. Go tell the disciples. And Peter. Don't we serve a great God? 
Go tell the disciples and Peter. Yeah, we, we know about Noah getting drunk. But the Bible still calls him a preacher of righteousness. Yeah, we remember about David and Bathsheba. But we know David is a man after God's own heart. You see, we don't serve a used-to-be God. Talking about all we used to be. and Forever bringing up all those things that we used to do. You know why? Because we have been redeemed in Christ Jesus. And we have been forgiven of our sins. By the blood of Christ. So that we are a new creation. What is the God we serve? We, we serve the God who made sure that the first person who got to see the resurrected Jesus Christ of all people was Mary Magdalene. No doubt in my mind this morning that some of you in this audience and some of you watching from home uh, might still struggle with what you used to be. And I can't tell you today that what you used to be or what you have done doesn't matter because all around us in our world are things that show us that's not true. There's many a criminal who is in jail today that will be in jail for the rest of their life. You see, what they did still has consequences. But I can tell you that those people, if they have trusted Jesus Christ, have been forgiven. And they can stand before the same throne that you and I will one day stand before. Because our God's not a used-to-be God. It's not in the used-to-be business. But he's in what we are in Christ and what we're going to be in him. And I'll tell you what, folks. That's something to get just a little bit excited about. It might even make a Baptist shout if we just think about it a little bit. It might not, but it might. Some of you today might be asking, how can I get in on that? Well, Jesus himself told us, Whosoever believeth in me should not perish, but have everlasting life. Folk, it's all about trusting in Jesus. It is the knowledge that though I was the guilty, Jesus was the guiltless. And though that I deserved to die, he took my place. That when he died on the cross, he died so that my sins could be forgiven. And he gives out a simple message. Believe. Believe. We express that belief then by calling on him. We, whosoever then a call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And aren't you glad that says whosoever? Whosoever. Whosoever. Maybe this morning that's a call you need to make. And you know where you sit. You need to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. I'd do it for you if I could, but I can't. But if you would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today, you'll be saved. If that happens for you, then you need to be baptized. Follow him in baptism. That's what the Bible tells us to do. Be baptized, not, uh, not in order to be saved, but because we are. And then be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We look at somebody like Mary Magdalene and say, well, it's no wonder she followed Jesus. 
Same Jesus. Same cross. Same blood. Same deliverance. Same transported from one kingdom into another. Same deliverance from the power of the devil. We've all got that same thing. Let's make sure that we follow him too. Let's stand together, please.